Welcome to It's All Recruiting, the show that looks at everything through the lens of recruiting. I'm your host, Jim Stroud. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of It's All Recruiting podcast. I'm your host, Jim Stroud, and with me is a very special guest talking about a kind of controversial topic. I'll let him introduce himself. Sir, if you would introduce yourself, please. Yes, I'm Cody Merrill, and I'm founder and CEO of SocialWise, which is a gig economy platform that helps governments pay unemployed people to do public benefit work to help them transition back in the workforce. Nice, nice. So uh, we were talking just prior to this podcast about automation and how a lot of people are concerned that robots and automation will take jobs away. And we were sort of talking about uh, what the government can do to assist those who may be displaced by all this new technology. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure, yeah. You know, whenever we talk about automation displacing workers, I think it's it's important to to address first the arguments from both camps. So in, in one camp, you have like a Martin Ford or an Eric Brynjolfsson or uh, Vivek Wadwa. You know, there's a lot of researchers that are very concerned about the future of work. And to summarize their argument, they say, look, this time's fundamentally different, right? We have, we have a, you know, we have two different fronts in this battle now. We have mechanical automation and we also have intellectual automation. And if we look back historically and we expect things to continue to work the same, then we're going to be sorely disappointed and we're going to be well underprepared for, you know, the full scope of the problem. When, tech, when technology is growing exponentially, so are the externalities. And then on the other side of that camp, you know, there's like a Mark Andreessen who, who would say something to the effect of, you know, despite thousands of years of people predicting the end of work, uh, we now have more jobs than ever, you know, despite hundreds and thousands of years of technological innovation. Sure. And, and so, you know, I think that one of the arguments that really, really crystallizes the debate for me is a point that, that Eric Brynjolfsson, uh, who's, a, who's a researcher at, at MIT, he, uh, he says that the best analogy is to look at, at horse employment. So we didn't have any horses until Columbus, and then, and then we had horses, and then the number of horses that were being employed in a commercial capacity was growing steadily with, uh, with the population of, of humans. And then came the railroad. And, you know, when the railroad came about, everyone thought, okay, well, does this mean that, that this is the end of the horse? You know, it's the, it's the iron horse after all. Right. And, and what we found is that, is that it did not uh, create the, the end of the commercial use for the horse. Uh, it actually grew, the commercial use for horses actually grew in tandem. And if you think about it, they aren't perfect substitutes. Uh, a railroad has a fixed track and it's good at taking people and goods long distances. Mm -hmm. But what a horse provides is a door to door solution for someone in town who can, you know, 
have the means of transportation, you know, any number of different paths to get to a relatively uh, close point A to point B. And so I think if we, if we analyze the lessons that we learned with horses, then we'll, we will realize that the automobile completely just cratered the entire market for horse employment because it was, you know, too close of a substitute. Everything, you know, that a horse could provide, the automobile could be better, cheaper, faster. You know, you don't, you don't have to feed it and bathe it. And, you know, there's still <laughs> right. inputs. You have to uh, you know, put gasoline in it. And just like robots and, and factories, you know, there's going to be some maintenance but a factory that's, you know, where the work's primarily being performed by robots and the maintenance is being performed by humans is going to employ far fewer humans than, you know, the factories of uh, previous decades. Sure, so, sure, sure. It, it, so, it sort of reminds me of um, 19th century, uh, well, not 19th century. Yeah, I think it was 19th century. The, the Luddite movement, if you're familiar with that, where... Uh, new inventions like the steam engine and the cotton gin were um, displacing skilled workers because you could have one of these uh, machines and someone who isn't highly skilled can still do the work that those skilled workers were. And so a lot of people uh, were afraid of that and they would break into these warehouses and destroy the machines thinking that that would protect their job. But it's it's basically progress. You know, as you said, things things new technology comes into place. Things change. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, people will go away or rather the work will go away just that it will change. It'll morph. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the Luddites are, are a great historical example of, you know, different factions engaging with this, with this concept of human displacement differently. And, you know, even before that, uh, you know, there's some arguments from Jean-Jacques Rousseau about, mm. you know, criticizing scientific progress, arguing that, you know, we actually, humans are happier living a more simple agrarian life. So, <laughs> you know, you know it, it, it might be something to that because all the uh, different uh, examples of tech addiction, uh, when I read that people are happier when they're uh, spend more time with, in nature, uh, he may have a point. Just put up, put the phones down for a minute and take a walk through the woods. Yeah, you know, I I think there's there's always an important argument for balance, but when it comes to our professional capacities, I think it's really crucial that we recognize that that performing work and dignified work are extremely important components of the human condition. Sure. And, you know, it goes beyond just the income that it that it supplies, but it's also a a sense of purpose. And the reality is that there are fewer and fewer tasks increasing by the day mm. that that uh, humans can do that robots can't do that are cheaper and faster. And yeah. you know, a lot of the research being performed in law firms really has no business being done uh, by by a human. You know, a lot of uh, diagnostics and medicine, you know, are, you know, there's AI that is seeing things that human radiologists can't see. 
Sure. And, you know, so there's all the types of automation that, that we're familiar with that we see, you know, the, the robots in the factories, but we also have to think about, you know, in the service industry, we see a lot more self-checkout kiosks, whether it's Walmart or, or McDonald's in an Amazon warehouse. You know, that thing's roboted up to the T, delivering things, you know, all over the place. And yeah, there's a lot of humans there, but, you know, the ratio of robot labor to human labor is increasingly going the way of the robot. So let me let me yeah, ask you this ahead. then. Let me ask you this then. Um, if robots and automation are displacing so many workers, let's say um, in the near future, then how do you think the government should respond to that? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, there are a lot of interesting proposals that that are out there now. And you know, if you if you listen to the Democratic debates this year compared mm. to like four years previously it's like you know it's it's almost like we're in a different universe the sure. way yes. the conversations are going and uh you know this year we have a candidate whose whose primary platform focus is ad addressing workplace displacement from automation and that and that's andrew yang so mm -hmm. let's uh talk about his proposal which is universal basic income and I am absolutely a universal basic income fan. I think that it will become an inevitability. So Bain and McKinsey say that like between 20 to 33% of workers are going to be displaced by 2030. So we're, you know, we're going to have a massive, massive problem on our hands where we have people who want to work, who want to contribute, who need that income, who all of a sudden don't have those things. And so, yes, some new jobs will be created, but not nearly as many as the jobs that are destroyed. And a lot of the new jobs that are created are going to be created in different markets, different cities from the ones where they've been destroyed. So we need mechanisms to kind of grease the wheels to allow people to move to those new opportunities and to allow people, uh, you know, income that will sustain them while they pursue training or whatever it is that they need to succeed in the digital age. And so I think that that a universal basic income is always going to be part of the solution, but even the most ambitious plans are a thousand dollars a month. And so, you know, $12,000 a year is enough to, to avoid starvation, but there's still, unmet financial needs for most of the households. We live in a society today where 78% of workers are living paycheck to paycheck. And so I think that universal basic income is an efficient way of, of addressing this, cutting checks instead of having you know, more bureaucracies to administer a more complex welfare system. But I also feel that universal basic income uh, does not do anything or much of anything to address the need that humans have for meaningful work. So that kind of leads me to, you know, these universal public employment initiatives mm -hmm. and these take all different types of flavors. You know, if we look back historically in the great depression, if we looked at FDR style work programs with the public works administration, works progress administration, you know, 
where government said, hey, it's costing us a lot of money when these people don't have work. They need help to survive. And there's good things in the community that they can do that we can pay them to do. So it's this kind of realization that we can kind of help solve several of our own problems. And, you know, it, it, uh, it worked well. It was what the country needed. But that doesn't mean that's the best way to implement it. Yeah, go ahead. Sure, sure, sure. And, um, and I appreciate your argument. I've heard universal basic income debated several different ways. Um, I've heard different arguments pro and, and against. And I'll, just to get your, your take on, on a couple of things. So when you say cut the checks for the people who um, need a, additional assistance, um, knowing that it's not the, the ultimate cure for everything, but it's a way of, of assisting. How do you counter the argument that uh, you could give someone $1,000, $10,000 a month, a million dollars a month, but if they uh, historically have proven not to be good stewards of the money they have, then no matter what amount of money you give someone, they're going to mismanagement and still be in the same predicament they were before because they don't have the basic financial skills to do a budget. Yeah, you know, there's definitely a litany of criticisms along the lines of, hey, you know, people really just need to be better budgeters. Sure. But I feel like if we focus too much on arguments in that camp, you know, it's, it can be alluring to make arguments where there's really no solution, right? Oh, well, hey, if, you know, if, if the problem with the education system is uh, parenting, then let's just blame it on the parents. And then, and then, you know, it doesn't leave us from a policy standpoint in a situation where, where we can really help address the problem. And so I think that, that there's certainly some work that can be done for, uh, educating people on financial literacy in tandem with the universal basic income. But I think it's also really important to look at the research. And so Rutger Bregman, uh, he, he's a historian and he's one of the leading voices on universal basic income. He's actually famous for his recent appearance at the Davos conference. Mm. But one of the things that he likes to highlight is that when people are in an income scarce environment, their, their intellectual quotient, their, their IQ actually drops. I believe he says it's like something to, you know, like 13 to 15 points. What, be, so, being, what being poor makes you dumber? <laughs> Is that, that what he says? Yes. Yes. And okay. so, so there's a study of like uh, farmers and after they, their, their uh, crops would, you know, be harvested and they would sell it and they would have a lot of money and then they did a really robust analysis of, of their spending behavior, uh, a cognitive test to try to understand is there a connection? Does just having financial security actually make you function smarter? And, and that, and that answer is yes. And I think it's uh, easier to understand the more familiar you are with low income individuals and the stress that, that a financial insecurity uh, generates. And, and it, it, it absorbs so much bandwidth mm -hmm. that it's hard for them to 
take a lot of the logical steps that are so clear for people who have had steady employment for a considerable period of time. And who was the author of that research you were saying? Forgive me. I, 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 uh, I'm not. So Rudger Bregman is the guy who cited the okay. research, but but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. No worries. Is, but but I was, I was just curious because no, I was curious because because if he was here, I would I would say if if being poor makes you dumb, then how come lottery winners aren't like geniuses? Because <laughs> all the lottery winners I, I've seen in the news, you know, they uh, they get rich overnight, literally, and then in a few years they're broke again and worse off. Uh, so I would debate him on being poor makes you dumb. I know some poor people who are pretty smart and some rich people who are pretty stupid. <laughs> oh, oh <laughs> yeah. And I just, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, that he would agree that there's certainly outliers, but sure. I think the crux of his argument is that there's sort of this minimum threshold of financial security. And when you fall below that, it consumes so much of your bandwidth that if you look at it in aggregate, you know, those people consistently make poor financial decisions. Sure. And sure. Not, sure. I think it's understandable. Sure. Now you mentioned um, about uh, government involvement and the different programs um, that can facilitate uh, universal, universal basic in income, but, but other things as well. Um, if you could, ex 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 what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Extrapolate on that a bit more. Um, but also, if you would, I would ask in advance, is there a work component to what you are proposing? So if someone were to receive an extra thousand dollars a month at universal basic income, would they also have to work for it in some in some manner? Yeah, so there's different initiatives. Um, what Andrew Yang is proposing is, mm -hmm. is an unconditional one thousand dollars a month. What somebody like a Chris Hughes, who's a co-founder of Facebook and is one of the leading individuals in the give directly and universal basic income world. What uh, he proposes is that everybody who's, who's working and there's a very loose definition of work. If you're a stay at home mom and you're taking care of kids, that accounts for working. You know, sure. if you're, if you're doing paintings or something that accounts as working. And then there's uh, people who propose, a wage supplement you know there's there's a lot of concern with you don't want to disincentivize work right mm -hmm. nobody wants to do that and i think that you know the argument that universal basic income disincentivizes work uh you know i think that's overblown considerably you know i think to some extent it does but on micro studies what they have found is that uh, you know individuals tend to stay in school longer, or uh, or mothers stay home with their kids longer before going back to work. You know these are things that you know may not directly show hey that they're working longer, but yeah. they're not exactly bad uses of time either. You know they're not sitting at home abusing drugs at a higher rate. And that's that's a, you make an yeah. interesting point. You make an interesting point in that, and so. Um, my question to that is, how do you measure the success of a universal basic income? Because if, if you say, okay, we're going to give you X amount of dollars um, in perpetuity, then how do you measure what's success? I mean, if there's no endpoint, like, okay, 
I'm going to give you this, this money. I'm going to invest in you because uh, you're going to start a business. So my return is going to be a successful business or I'm going to invest in you for the service and I'm going to get a successful service. If I'm giving someone universal basic income of a thousand a month, how do I know it's working or what, what, what return is the government going to get on his money besides giving out money? Sure. So Y Combinator also has a research arm. So for people who aren't familiar, that's the most prestigious oh, yeah. uh, startup accelerator in the world. Uh, they, they also have a nonprofit arm, YC Research, and they have funded the most robust universal basic income experiment uh, ever in the world. And so it is about to go into implementation. I know that their program is already funded, but they have a really great PDF. I think it's about 20 pages where they walk through their model and what they're hoping to achieve. So not only is it going to be the best funded, it's also going to be the best experiment. They have the most robust academic analysis that they're going to perform. And I don't want to sure. say that I, that I have all of their criteria, but I know certain criteria that they're examining to judge whether or not this is successful are, you know, um, healthcare, educational attainment, um, criminal activity, whether it goes up or down. And then one of the criteria uh, is, are they more or less engaged in the community? And then another one is, are they performing more or less work, <laughs> right? So is it, is it serving as a deterrent to work and it's actually not creating value for society? Or is it allowing people to the uh, flexibility to pursue work that is most meaningful or to stay in school longer or take care of your kids or whatever, you know, yeah. something that's uh, pro-social and, and helpful. And so for me, you know, when I see that's the criteria that they're measuring their program from, to me, that says that, well, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish with this gig economy platform where local governments can pay homeless people, veterans, formerly incarcerated individuals, someone who's displaced from automation, doesn't matter the situation. If you're unemployed and you need work, there's things in your local community that, that you can do, whether it's beach cleanup, whether it's cleaning up public parks, whether it's working at a food bank, Habitat for Humanity, soup kitchen, reading hour at a public library. You know, you have your choice, whatever's meaningful to you, we will pay you to do, uh, and we will do that immediately. And instead of the government having to create a whole lot of bureaucracies to administer and scale these programs, why not work through the existing local infrastructure of organizations that already supervise unskilled labor and turning that into public benefit? That is really cool. I really like that idea. Um, I've seen uh, certain cities in the news that have uh, been uh, overrun with homeless. And because of that, they're like needles in the street and other things in the trash, that kind of thing. So if I were a government uh, administrator and I wanted to use your program and say, hey, we have some really bad streets. I want to use your program to get uh, people to clean up the street, so to speak, because it'll be cheaper to use your program than to hire some other company. How, how, what, 
could I do that with your with your product? Yeah. So the way the the product works is we would have a deal with like a local government and they would contribute funds to to a wage bank. So it could be a local government and then local foundations could contribute money, local corporate social responsibility uh, initiatives could could contribute money. So that money sits in the wage bank. And then, you know, if you're if you're homeless or in some situation where you really need employment, mm-hmm. well, you probably have a mobile phone. And if you don't have a mobile phone, then you're probably not high enough functioning person for me to be able to help. This isn't a solution that can help all, all people. Sure. This is a solution that can help people who, uh, who want to work sure. and have the wherewithal to do so. So mm-hmm. they get on there and then, you know, the hope is that they can choose between five different options at any one given point in time that are within a two mile radius of, of where they live. And if you think about it, you know, a lot of nonprofits are located in these low income areas. So mm-hmm. I want to do what I can to try to mitigate that transportation burden, more gigs that are posted on our platform, the easier it will be for them to get where they need to be to do the work. But, you know, an ideal scenario is like in San Francisco, why not, you know, pay homeless people to clean the human feces and heroin needles. Exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> exactly and, what I was thinking. And, and in and in LA, you know, they're actually paying homeless people now $15 an hour to help clean Skid Row. And oh, wow. So, there, so there's these initiatives all over the country yeah, that are particularly homeless work initiatives. And it started in Albuquerque with former mayor Richard Berry. He has a great TED talk on it. There's other content online, but mm. he had a tremendously successful program that grew year over year under his tenure. And, you know, it's just this basic premise, pay people that are costing a lot of money when they don't have work to do work that needs to be done in the community. And, and, you know, he says in his, in his TED talk, you know, if, uh, if there's a mayor out there somewhere that has no work that needs to be done in their community, can I have their phone number? Because I need some advice. And so, and so, you know, I think we all understand that there's no shortage of work that needs to be done. And there's no shortage of people who are costing taxpayers a lot of money who don't have work. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's uh, marry the two. And, and for me, a far more scalable way to do that is to incorporate software. So instead of a city driving a van around, picking up people here or there, and then paying them in an envelope of cash at the end of the day, mm-hmm. if, if you're engaging with them digitally on their mobile phone, and more people globally have mobile phones than toothbrushes. So that's wow. definitely the uh, best delivery mechanism. <laughs> it's, it's clearly, you know, if you're trying to enact change at scale, and you're really trying to help people with upward mobility, you know, the, the answer is through the mobile device. Sure. And so with their mobile device, they can access all those different opportunities where they can go do public benefit work in their community. And then all of that comes together and it comes back to their resume. So it's, so it's similar to, it's like an Uber driver where, oh, you know, I've done, I've done 490 trips and I'm a 4.9 star worker and I, and I have these stickers. Well, for us, you know, we're trying to help these individuals transition back into private employment. 
and we're trying to help them demonstrate you know that they're in a that they're in clear mind that they're ready to work that they're capable of getting along with their supervisors mm-hmm. so to have that digital resume and you know to be a homeless person and then to be able to walk into a job interview and say hey you know, over the past four weeks, I've worked 65 hours on public benefit projects, and I'm a 4.9 star worker. Then that completely changes how the homeless person thinks about themselves. I like it completely that. Completely changes how the yeah. you know how the private employer views them. You know, mm-hmm. you know, if you're hiring someone in in the moderate to low skilled uh, fields, you know, you probably understand that you know they they might have a criminal record or they might have some things about their past that you know, are non-desirable, but, uh, but what's important is, are they getting up in the morning? Are they being productive? Are they showing that they really want to improve their life situation? And if they can prove that, then that's just a uh, complete game changer. And another really important component of our platform is we also have our workers list their skills. So, in the white collar world, you know, if I'm trying to hire someone for a specific role, I can go on LinkedIn and I can, you know, query and come up with a list of five candidates that perfectly meet my needs. Mm-hmm. But if, uh, you know, if I'm a low to moderate skilled employer and I'm trying to systematically identify candidates in my local market who can do the work that I need, um, it's less clear how how to go about doing that and sort of replicating that LinkedIn type of experience. But with the socialized platform, private employers can query, can query our system. Mm-hmm. They can find people who have high star ratings who are doing good work and you can see, Oh, Hey, I want someone who has a good attitude is doing good work, but they also have two years of basic carpentry skills or they have their commercial driver's license or maybe they're a yoga instructor, like whatever that skill is, right. uh, why not give them a tool to where they can query and find those people? And you know, for me, with, with my platform, our vision isn't to try to get people on there and then keep them in, in public benefit work forever. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the hope just is the means, just the means to start. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now I, I see we're, we're coming up on time and I, I, I don't want anyone to miss out on the opportunity to connect with you. If someone wanted to connect with you and learn more about your platform, maybe request a demo, how can they go about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I would say just shoot me an email, Cody at socialwise.com. That's S O C I A L W Y Z E.com. And I would be more than happy to follow up with you right now. Uh, you know, we've got a lot going on as a company trying to get this off the ground. And, you know, we have some pilot opportunities that we're tremendously excited about, uh, particularly out in Hawaii, but I'm always trying to fill up the hopper. I'm always trying to make connections with new cities and, uh, you know, start that sales process because, this is a universal problem. You know, there's cities yes. all over the world that uh, have this problem that, that want more productivity out of uh, homeless individuals, low income community in general. 
and 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 it's and the problem's going to get worse as automation displaces more and more workers. So you know, definitely, definitely. yeah. The world is our market, but we have to start slow, demonstrate efficacy at a small level, and then uh, move up from there. Well, I wish you well in your enterprise. I especially like the uh, the take of helping putting the homeless to work. That is, uh, I really like that, and I like everything that you that you mentioned before uh, about far as how your platform works and how it could benefit society overall. So, uh, kudos to you for that, sir, and thank you for your time. I do appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jim. It was a pleasure uh, being on the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you a thousand times. Thank you for listening to my show. If you love what you heard, hate what you heard, or don't know what you just heard, I want to know about it. If you would, go to my blog over at jimstrout.com and leave me a note. I would so much appreciate that. All right. Until next time. Bye-bye. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. And for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.